Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, spending the podcast earnings wisely as I bought a, <laughs> a wheel, some pedals, and a little sideboard to play Farming Simulator. That is what I like to call responsible podcast spending. Uh-huh. Yeah, I will. I mean... Compared to the other things we wanted to spend the podcast money on, which is, and these are all real ideas, a billboard, and I want to say Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rural Missouri. Rural Missouri. Well, that's where we can afford a billboard. That's where we can afford a billboard. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what is also, I think that's the main one. So, compared to the billboard idea, mm-hmm. um, well, a lot of rural ideas going on here. Farming. Right. Billboards. Right. I think we're really leaning into a lifestyle. Well, we'll see where this goes. <laughs> and uh, I'm Camera Lalana, and this week the universe is playing some sort of cosmic joke on me because uh, throughout my life, it's been very difficult for me to focus on one thing. So I've always kind of multitasked or gotten to many different skill sets. And uh, once I got into news, I thought finally just one skill set to focus on. But now they've split me between writing for TV and writing for the internet. So once again. Uh, I'm I'm diverted into multiple. Uh, I'm, I'm multi-track drifting, if you will. Skill sets. What do you ever write for TV? Like you're writing for the internet. Would that be good? Uh, no, that would actually you send the newscasters the uh, online script. <laughs> <laughs> I actually can't think of a faster way to lose my job <laughs> than than do that repeatedly. <laughs> Sending them an onion article to read. <laughs> well. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Today, in part three of book three of War and Peace, we are going to burn down Moscow, baby. It's finally happening. <laughs> You've been asking Tipsy Tolstoy, when will you burn down Moscow? Today is the day. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're really dedicated to carrying out uh, just fun things for our fans, and especially fun things we see in books like you know, uh, changing the generations, the freeing of the serfs, the burning of Moscow, you know, all classic, classic little Slavic lit things. Real quick, Tolstoy fam, if you want to see us burn down Moscow, I'm going to need you to smash that like button, <laughs> uh, five star that review button, and we're going to get right on over there uh, and accidentally burn down the city. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and um, well, after you've invested all this time into War and Peace, you probably want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your reading. That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where we post a reading guide for each episode. That includes quick commentary and major quotes and themes, plus once per month during this uh, during this series, we're hosting a Patreon-only reading group to discuss everything that we didn't get to talk about on the show. Plus, we're being really good about adding early episodes for the first time in a, in a hot minute there. So everyone Cheers that's on that. our patron account is going to be getting our early episodes for the War and Peace series, which is wonderful if you are just a super fast reader and thinking, how can I get more Tolstoy directed, uh, just injected straight into my veins? That's how. Mm. Mm-hmm. But that's how. Th- yeah, if you're not interested in Patreon, but you still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're getting your podcasts, or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Right. And speaking of ways you can support the podcast, we also wanted to welcome our two newest patrons, Christina and Marin. Thank you both so much for uh, supporting the podcast and allowing us to keep doing this work we do on the schedule that we do. And before we get into the reading today, Matt, I have to ask you, this fine morning, this beautiful yep. early oh, yeah. early morning, what are you drinking today? So I'm drinking another beer by Brooklyn Brewery, mostly because they came in a variety pack, and that's really convenient for me. Uh, <laughs> it is non-alcoholic beer called Special Effects. It is a hazy IPA. I cannot remember if this is the one from the pack I drank like last time on the podcast, uh, but... <laughs> I think they might all have the same name. I'm legitimately not sure. This one's purple and green. Sure. Hey, look at it. Hey, come on. It doesn't. Where's the logo? It doesn't purple sound familiar. So. All right. That looks nice. Uh, it's described as <laughs> soft, surprising, ripe. <laughs> I disliked every one of those. <laughs> I think the worst way to describe a beer uh-huh. is surprising. I think it should probably taste like beer. Right. If it could be seamlessly weaved into a monologue for the show Hannibal, I think that might <laughs> bear a second. A second pass yeah uh it's uh, it's actually pretty good i i just i don't know what's surprising about it <laughs> hey 
It's a non-alcoholic beer that's good. Maybe that's surprising. I found them all to be pretty good, so I can't really, I can't dunk on it too sure. much. Uh, what have you got over at, uh, what is this, 9 a.m. your time? It, it, it's 9, 9.25 in, uh, in uh, the morning. And luckily for me, I don't work until 3, so um, I have with me Hard a... liquor it is. <laughs> <laughs> time to break out their whiskey. Um, I have from a Sacramento brewery, Track 7 Brewing, a uh, honey blonde ale called Beeline. Uh, which is a, you know, it's a blonde ale, mildly sure. sweet. Sure. I, I don't know if there's too much of a tasting note to speak of, but good, refreshing uh, morning beer uh, to the extent that I can recommend. Can you give us some tasting some, notes? Okay, hold on one second. Mm-hmm. Or should I drink closer to the mic? Yeah, the I, I, I think effects? you should slurp. I mean, that's what I know you drink. Oh, yeah. Mm. Tasting notes, mm-hmm. ale. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, an undertone of honey. Okay. Yeah, that's about as good. That's, all right. That's, that's about all I got. Beautiful. <laughs> There's a reason I'm a podcaster and not a small no, no. gay. Yeah, yeah. Well, no breweries hire Cameron, please. <laughs> no, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, I cannot. I cannot provide that much to you other than um, telling you after drinking whatever you have to offer. Yeah, tastes good. Tastes uh, good. They, they can definitely sell this. Perfect. I think someone will definitely buy it you can tell if you want to hire me to consult for your business you can tell i've got very high level analyses of market situations <clears throat> yeah that's what i keep you around for <laughs> well and speaking of high level uh market analyses let's go ahead and talk about the greeks let's do it <laughs> so part three of book three of war and peace uh starts off with tolstoy saying all right let's talk about some greek parables and he gives the this classic example of classic paradox of well say you've got achilles i think it's achilles racing after a tortoise and a tortoise you know only moves so fast and achilles moves 10 times faster than the tortoise but the problem is every time achilles covers the distance between himself and the tortoise the tortoise has again moved forward and you know achilles once he gets there must again go the rest of the distance to catch up to the tortoise meaning therefore achilles will never catch up to the tortoise i didn't explain that uh, logical paradox very well uh, neither does Tolstoy, though. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> the, the point is just he eviscerates the social sciences before yes. they're even created, really. <laughs> I mean, you have, like, history, but... Sure. Oh, man, is it brutal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's... So, what, what he's doing, what he, what he means by this is he says, okay, well, of course, now in mathematics, we know this classic paradox exists because it's... The idea is, well, how could this possibly exist? If we know that in real life, you would obviously catch up to the tortoise if mathematically it does it. And Tolstoy says, I mean, obviously, mathematically, we can look at minuscule sums and actually it it doesn't create an actual paradox unless you're using very basic forms of mathematics. But so, too, should we think of the historical study, as Matt said, using this terminology, because we tend to think of history as in in modern terminology, we think of this as like great man theory, which is not a a reputed form of doing history, I should say. Even in yeah, even in the most basic history classes you take, in the ones where they kind of tell you like the gentle lies to make it easier for you before they tell you like the more complex truths later, no one is going to tell you anyone takes great man truth seriously in any modern historical discipline and hasn't for a long time. However, it was quite in vogue at this time. I don't know if that's true. I think that people, like not as seriously as in this one person really moved history but I do yeah. think there is a lot of influence that that has had on history. And also, oh, well, like, no, there's a whole huge discipline influence. of international relations, which is, like, IR psychology, which is, like, looking into world leaders and, like, trying to psychoanalyze them <laughs> and then saying, oh, this is why they did this. And I do not believe in that. Yeah, okay, well, IR is not a real discipline, so right, that's why I, that... Exactly, that's why that has <laughs> permeated IR. Sorry, um, it'd be the one to break it to you, but I will. Yeah, <laughs> no, yes, that's true. So, it, I mean, it depends. And where I went to schooling, it was not a reputed form of doing history. However, it has been for a long time in some places and in some disciplines that are not history. It maintains the idea that there are certain people, not that they'd probably articulate it this way, but the underlying idea is that there are certain people who kind of drive history forward. And Tolstoy takes issue with this even before really you have a name for it, as Matt mentioned, uh, especially coming for history saying, you know, if, if uh, we don't understand the idea of the minuscule or the idea of the individual human will, then it might seem the case that there are certain people uh, who actually push history forward. But really, it's the mass of all of our individual collective wills, as we've covered in many, many other settings. 
he's once again restating the idea, although, you know, fun language along the way. Well, and he's also saying that you can't even understand the human will, basically. You know, even if you could get down to the most minuscule level, it is ever expanding. You will never be able to fully grasp it. And therefore, any sort of theory just falls apart. It doesn't work. Yeah, I, I will say, I think he kind of says it's possible, but he says we haven't even tried. And his exact line, at least what, what I took away from was, no one can tell to what extent it is given to a man to achieve in the way and understanding of the laws of history. But it is obvious that the possibility of grasping historical laws lies only on this path, this path being like understanding the individual, and that on this path, human reason has not yet made a millionth of the effort of the historians of that which historians have made in describing the deeds of various kings, commanders, and ministers, and in setting forth their reflections on the occasions of these deeds. I think everyone would do well to read a little Tolstoy, though. You know how, like, when you talk with, uh, I don't know, let's just say your grandparents? Sure. And they're like, history, always changing. How does history change? What's up with that? Well, you should read a little Tolstoy. Maybe you'd, maybe you'd start to get it. Uh, Tolstoy is is out here saying you should read, and I know that this, I think, historically, maybe this has, has some shortcomings, but his, Tolstoy is saying read, um, what is it, A People's History of the United States, <laughs> what he's coming out here to, to rep for. Tolstoy <laughs> says, Howard Zinn, Svetlana Alexeyevich, um, Suds Tarkle, big yes in my book, says Tolstoy officially. I'm going to go ahead and put those words in his mouth. Sure, sure. <laughs> from here he kind of recaps the french advance to moscow and like in the way when he denies the idea that the french re- reaching moscow was in any way intentional either on the part of the russian military or on the part of the french military you know he puts forth the idea that it was kind of an accident on both ends he says also the military understanding of this battle is also flawed because it's not about the choice of whether or not to defend. You know, people can look back and say, oh, he should have done this. But really, he didn't make, you know, Kutuzov didn't make the decision not to defend Moscow there. And what Tolstoy says is people accustomed to not understanding or forgetting all these unavoidable conditions of the activity at Philly. And in doing so, suppose that on the 1st of September, the commander in chief could freely decide the question of whether to abandon or defend Moscow. Whereas with the Russian army position within three miles of Moscow, this question could not actually exist. When then was the question decided? At Drissa and at Smolensk, and most palpably at Shevardino on the 24th, on the 26th of Borodina, and every, at every day, hour, and minute of our retreat from Borodina to Philly. So, hitting home again the point that it's not historical decisions aren't one moment. It's not do we defend Moscow or do we not? Not simple cost benefit analysis. Even though the Russian army was there, the question could not actually exist because so many other conditions so much was unknown and so many things had just already been decided for the military at this point from on their long retreat that it, it simply as as is in the next several sections which i won't go into too much detail on uh, we're following Kutuzov and his commanders basically coming to this decision to abandon moscow and despite all their arguing over multiple meals and multiple places uh Kutuzov from the very beginning knows the only possible outcome because everyone else up to that point is basically just denying the options they have in front of them. Well, not denying, they're creating options in front of them, and, and only really Kutuzov seems to understand that there is no option in front of them. There is no defense to be made of Moscow. They don't have the troops. They don't have the defensive lines. They have nothing they need to create a real defense, and it's not a victory that's worth winning anyway. Well, it should be worth noting there are some that want to defend yes. the great and holy Moscow, but it's kind of like a, just an emotional s- speech. It's sort of like Maybe not even that they want to defend it, it's that they don't want to be responsible for having abandoned it. And Kutuzov actually gives everybody a really good out by just making the decision and saying, sorry boys, we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of the role of social institutions in this part, as we'll come to see. No more war, on to peace. <laughs> no more war. Uh, Kutuzov has demanded we have no more war in his own particular way. So we go from here to the city of Moscow itself, and we're going to introduce a character. I, we may have mentioned him before, but now he's kind of coming to his own, Count Rostop, uh, Rostopchin. And our friend, Count Rostopchin, has been kind of the minister in charge of getting Moscow ready for this invasion. And what that means is he's basically thrown every spaghetti idea he has at the wall, whether that is putting up posters, arresting anyone who kind of seems vaguely French, sentencing his political enemies to hard labor because he can now. Uh, really, he's been doing a lot of work for for the you know for the for the throne. Dude's been on the grind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but regardless of what he does, the underlying implication of his introduction chapter is 
nothing he does has much effect. It's just it's a scattershot. It has contradictory effects. Nothing he does really means anything. And in the city at this time, the people are just kind of, for the most part, living their lives. Especially Helena, who uh, at this point is um, trying to decide what to do going forward. Uh, she's got two potential suitors, and it's like, well, who do I go with? I'm the, you know, I'm the most wanted Belle at the ball. This is a difficult decision. The most wanted married Belle at the ball. <laughs> the most wanted married Belle at the ball. Well, that's not really a problem, as we'll discover. You know, instead of her, Helen, uh, Helena, on the contrary, uh, like a truly great person, can do whatever she likes, and at once placed herself in the position of being right, in which she sincerely, belie- sincerely believed all others to be in the position of being wrong. So, regardless of what she does, like a truly great person, she can instantly make herself think that she's in the right. Um, and so she ends up, in, in this process of kind of having these two suitors, ends up converting to Catholicism in an attempt to get out of her marriage. Bet. And when the religious, <laughs> I, I don't remember if it's a priest or bishop or what, she's talking to is like, that's not really how it works. Which, uh, yeah, I, uh, only from orthodoxy could you be like, I should convert to Catholicism. They seem like they have a more positive attitude <laughs> towards, <laughs> towards divorce. <laughs> she says something kind of in her usual way of not really being truly intelligent but being witty enough to be and understood as such at least as the narrator would have you believe um she kind of observes that really you know what is religion but observing certain decencies while also trying to get exactly what you want out of life and the bishop says oh ho, ho, well, that's a good view you're wrong but you know quite charming quite charming well you're right but i don't want you to let you know that you've bested me that easily in our argument so <laughs> i'll continue to argue with you for like two more chapters yeah <laughs> um so now in society, the big question is, oh, who she's gonna marry? Who is she gonna marry? And you might wonder, wait, isn't don't people like no one thinks about the fact that she's married to Pierre? And as it said, as for whether it was good or bad to marry while one's husband was living, no one spoke of it because the question had obviously already been decided by people more intelligent than you and I, as they said. And to doubt the correctness of the decision would mean to risk showing one's stupidity and inability to live in a society. Tolstoy was just Tolstoy is. is He's on his social. He's on his. I've got a bone to pick with society grind in this chapter. Yeah, I think because he gets kind of the reputation for being like anti Orthodox Church, he says, "No, I'm just anti Church, baby." (laughs) (laughs) I'll have you know, I hate them all. Um, I also want to point out that this is a plot. There's a book, July, July, by Tim O'Brien, in which this is, uh, <laughs> I've never realized, almost the exact same plot line where you've got a character named Spook Spinelli who falls in, two men, in love with two men and somehow convinces them both to marry her. Um, and then she's like, I actually want to get married to a third guy. And then the two men she's married to are like, we're going on strike until you figure out what you want. And then they move in together, which is truly a great, <laughs> truly great romance. Going on strike? Well... i'm like got their picket signs (laughs) they use their like i mean you're you know you can't just keep there they're in the in this book uh, they're like you can't just keep adding more and more people to this marriage Uh, i mean unless that's what you want if you want them new guy just go with the new guy but until then we're gonna move in together uh and just be bros on strike winky face (laughs) (laughs) oh that's not the that's not the broader point of july july anyway so this this maybe marriage of helena and one of the two suitors at the talk of the town uh, there are a few people who object including helena's mother i think this is the first time we've ever seen her i was gonna say there is really a lack of mothers in this society and it shows mm-hmm. the only the only good one is the rostov's mother yeah the only one who reacted in a, in a normal way to a 30 year old proposing marriage to her 14 year old daughter right right <laughs> Remember, so at this time, Helena writes a letter. She decides, I'm going to marry the older suitor. And she writes a letter to Pierre saying, letting him know we're done. And when it, the courier tries to deliver, it turns out Pierre is currently on the field at Borodino. Just wandering. Just, just, want, just Forrest Gump in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just wandering around. He, he like wanders away from the battle after this horrifying scene, falls asleep in a yard. Um, and then starts heading home. And it was on his way home, it's noted that he learned of the death of his brother-in-law, uh, Prince Karag- or Anatoly Karagin, and of Count Andrei Blakonsky. Warfare. Am I right, boys? Again, Am I right, again? boys? <laughs> no, no one has killed off Andrei 
more time like i forgot that he's killed off multiple times by the narrator in the, in the story <laughs> prince andre has like a marvel comics level plot armor <laughs> <laughs> captain america could learn a thing or two about survivability from him yeah literally and honestly i found the funniest picture of prince andre that i've been using for all of our videos on youtube now so this is a reminder to myself when i'm editing andre 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 <laughs> i can put the funny picture in there You'll see why. He's he's dummy thick. There's no getting rid of him. <laughs> well, that's why you can't stop him. It's just like you can't stop Rachmetov. Exactly. Too dummy thick to stop. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so um, eventually Pierre gets home and he returns to the city and he's just like, whatever, I don't care about whatever's going on. Um, you know, he, he gets into a friendly conversation with Rostopchin, Rostopchin reminding him, don't keep associating with the people I'm sentencing to hard labor. I would hate to sentence you to hard labor too, <laughs> which Pierre doesn't love. And he goes home and he reads a letter and I'm just going to read this line because this is again, in the line of very funny things that happened to Andre, very funny, even among those standards. So he, he reads a letter from his wife finally, which has gotten to him after many, many days or in reads in the letter. They, the soldiers of the battery, Prince Andre killed, the old man, simplicity and obedience to God, one must suffer, meaning of everything, must hitch together, my wife's getting married, must forget and understand, and going to bed, he collapsed on it without undressing and fell asleep at once. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why the my wife's getting married is not the last thing and like the things he's paying attention to is the part that gets me makes me laugh the most but <laughs> <laughs> it's just in the list of things it's just all right old friend killed uh-huh yeah my wife's getting married mm, okay um must understand the meaning of god all right well i'm gonna go to bed thanks guys good night <laughs> so uh from there we go to the rostovs and i'm gonna go ahead and ring the sweet home alabama alert sure, uh because sure. petya is now at home and petya who's ah, known yes. to care of his mother uh it said uh, it's treating Natasha, his older sister, very, very well. And it's, he said, uh, I don't remember the context, but for, for talking about Petya, he refers to Nasha, Natasha, for whom, quote, he had always, he has always had a special, comma, almost amorous, comma, brotherly tendency. Yeah. I'm just gonna, yeah. I, so I think like what he was going for is when you have an older sibling, sometimes just by virtue of the fact that they're older, you view them as being cooler. And, you know, you want their respect or whatever. But it's this sort of subclause that he adds in there. I can't remember what my translation said, but it also, like, maybe goes like, hmm, we're going to have to talk about this, aren't we? <laughs> 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 so uh, Maybe you just talk differently about siblings at the time, but still, no flesh every time. I don't think so. <laughs> Whenever I tried to talk to people about Tolstoy now, I, I tell them, if you read his books, and you really should start with the short stories first, there are going to be some things you come across and you think, that's weird, but I guess it was normal at the time. And I need you to understand that there is a good, good chance that that wasn't normal at the time because <laughs> you need to understand that Tolstoy was a really fucking weird dude. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's all right. Yeah. We named the podcast after him, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's uh, We can't rag on him too much. So despite the fact that there's a sense growing that the city is going to be lost uh, life continues as normal the rostov's lives are and as much disarray as they ever are until you know you finally reach the last day and the chapter that opens on the last day of moscow so to speak moscow is a way of bouncing back uh moscow's uh, even today last time we were in moscow truly looked like it had just been burned down like a week ago uh <laughs> moscow's last day had come it was a bright clear autumn day a sunday the church bells everywhere were ringing for service, just as usual on Sundays. Nobody seemed yet to realize what awaited the city. The only way you can really tell are the way that many of the, the people who can leave are leaving. Many of the prices are dropping, in, you know, an incredible degree as merchants are just trying to <coughs> unload everything they have before they take off. And uh, we, we have, we were, for the most part, we follow the Rostov's exit, which is slow you know, very, it's not well done, frankly. They have all these, remember, wounded in their yard or in their home. Natasha is trying to get involved in packing, which people won't let her. Berg, who married to their young oldest daughter, Vera, drops by, and Berg is taking leave in Moscow from the army. Not because he's got any business in Moscow, just because everyone else was taking leave in Moscow, and he figured he should, too. <laughs> and he stops by and sees the family packing and says, 
you know, I must offer you my greatest sympathies. This is really difficult. Um, I noticed you have some really nice dressers out there, and I think Vera would really love it if I took those home. <laughs> and uh, the, the Count just kind of like throws up his hands and, and walks off on the verge of tears of his, at his shitty, shitty son-in-law. And I don't think that's actually why he walks off in tears, but... Um, Probably like you know. one of the worst characters. Uh, although he is kind of comedic relief for me whenever he comes right. back, because I know something good's <laughs> going to happen. He's like talking about we were talking about this before steva is someone that's comedic but a lot of people overlook the fact that he's like even though because he's funny he's kind of a terrible person right um, no problem with that with berg you just he's no, he, no. you know he's only there to say to a <laughs> be like exactly everybody else and b be the absolute worst person for that moment that he needs to be sure sure so finally the rostovs you know start off and are able to take off after a lot of difficulties and on their way out of the city they happen to see pierre and say oh pierre you look kind of disheveled as he's now dressed in like a peasant clothes and just wandering through the streets you want do you want to come with us and pierre's like no good to see you but no i've got business to to attend to here and they say okay and they take off and and so pierre after he got that letter from helena basically just disappeared from his own life it's only been two days but you know classic pierre stuff so he's been living in in his deceased the, the man who got him into the the Freemasons, he's been living in, in that man's house, who is now dead. And he's ba- kind of just following orders from this guy's, like, widow to uh, packing stuff up so she can flee the city. And as the French troops enter the city, he gets this grand daydream that, I can stop this, I will be the one to turn the tide back, and how will I do that? I'm going to kill Napoleon. Um, and so he's, he, gets a, he gets a gun, and he gets a knife, and he heads out into the city trying to find Napoleon <laughs> to kill him. And along the way, has several adventures, which actually, sorry, by the way, I should, I should go back. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but uh, we do have one chapter, very brief chapter with Napoleon at the start, overlooking Moscow, uh, which does have the humorous moment of where Napoleon gets lost in fantasy, imagining how he's going to give a speech to the boyars of Moscow, which will bring them around to him before his officers kind of awkwardly, not really, they don't tell him that uh, actually all the nobility of Moscow have kind of left already. Um, <laughs> they're just like trying to figure out how to break those news to him because no one wants to look ridiculous when when. Napoleon just gets bored of it and orders a charge into the city, which is very short-lived because they realize once they charge the city that no one's actually defending it and they're really disappointed. Um, so <laughs> that's how the French invasion of Moscow is going. Uh, so as Pierre is wandering the city, he runs into a couple different um, into a couple different events. As Tolstoy notes, it's a it's a dead city. It's it's an empty city, but it's not a lifeless city. Um, it does not have the normal city life. It does not have the merchants and all these classes and all this interaction. It just has people continuing on. And uh, people who are, frankly, uh, feel pretty slighted to the fact that they've been left behind. They A lot of them send to... Uh, uh, as, as Pierre's walking through, they're kind of getting angry at the... Uh, at the law and at the nobility saying, you know, where have the gentry and the merchants have gone? Where They've just left us to perish. Perish, did they think we're dogs uh, wandering the streets? And Rostopchin is still there, still being a dick. And he says, you know, now that we're in our final moments, I can get rid of all the people I hate. And he <laughs> he just starts giving out his final orders. He's really mad that Kutuzov is asking him to help help the retreat because it's even though it's not really his fault he feels it's somehow an admission that he failed and so he gives a bunch of useless orders which are really only going to be counter to the effort to retreat from the city and says oh who are those people we've arrested for hard labor um yeah well let's let's we should just go ahead and execute them even though as the novel notes they had not been in fact as despite the fact that he believed they should be executed they'd only been sentenced to labor so Classic wartime stuff. Uh, Tolstoy says to this, uh, because Rostopchin, through this entire series of events, believes that he is the controller of public order. He is the one everyone's looking to for what do we do next? What is our next step? How do we maintain this public calm? And, And Tolstoy says of this attitude, one need only admit that public tranquility is in danger, and any action finds a justification. All the horrors of the reign of terror are based only on solicitude, for public tranquility. So what happens here is Rostopchin orders a prisoner who is sentenced to hard labor and puts him in front of a crowd and says, all right, here's the man responsible for letting Moscow fall. Go ahead and beat him to death. And the crowd is like, what? They're just kind of mostly confused. Like they mostly feel bad for the guy until uh, um, one of the hussars like pulls a saber and wounds the guy. And then that uh, 
you know, a certain bloodlust in the crowd kind of takes over and they end up beating this guy to death. Also, and they, they end up almost beating someone else to death just incidentally because he was too close to the crowd. Restoption wonders, walks away, and he's now in this quiet moment faced with the fact that does anything I do mean anything? As, as Tolstoy notes, since the world began, men have killed one another. Uh, since the world has began and men have killed one another, no one has ever committed such a crime against his fellow man without comforting himself with the same idea. The idea is la bien, la bien publique, the hypothetical welfare of the people. Um, but so although Rostopchin finds himself kind of haunted by these events, he says, well, I couldn't have done anything else. People expected that of me. I had to do it, um, which, of course, is an invention of his own mind, but an invention which drives him onward. Uh, from this point onward, Tolstoy talks about briefly about why did the fire of Moscow come to be? And he says, the French attributed the fire of Moscow a patriotisme feroce de Rostopchina. I'm not even going to apologize for my French accent. I, I truly so far outside of knowing any French. The Russians, uh, which means the, you know, the fierce patriotism of Rostopchin, the Russians to the barbarity of the French. However, it was not and could not be possible to explain the burning of Moscow by making any individual or any group responsible for it. Moscow was burned because it found itself in a position in which any town built of wood was bound to burn, quite apart from whether or not it had, uh, you know, 130 inferior fire engines. Deserted Moscow had to burn as inevitably as a heap of shaving has to burn, which speaks on which sparks continually fall for several days. As he points out, you know, all the, the French army arrive, uh, nothing's there, they start to loot, they go off in their own way, lighting fires, trying to get warm, it's cold, <laughs> it's the winter, and in a bunch of, because most of the people have left, as he said, there's basically no one to tell them, hey, don't light a fire here because this is a bad idea in a wooden city. I don't think this, like, Tolstoyism is that interesting because literally he's just like, yeah, wooden city, gonna burn. That's about it. <laughs> Nothing else to say. Like, I could have told you that. <laughs> don't build cities out of wood. A lot of cities are built out of wood, so well, I guess there's... Stop. Don't. Stop. <laughs> don't do it. Use something else. Use use a different material. Use something that's not going to go up in flames like that. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, Pierre's wandering around the city under his delusion that he can kill Napoleon and uh, ends up saving a French officer from being shot. The French officer is like, you must be French. You speak French so well. You've got the you don't you don't seem like a Russian and <laughs> you seem too good to be one, uh, which Pierre <laughs> is like, yeah. And Pierre is like, doesn't take well to it, but he's also just terminally accommodating. So he just hangs out with the officer for the rest of the day. <laughs> They're just having a boys night. They had some wine, talked about uh, past love. I mean, hey. Yeah. (laughs) The city of of Moscow is burning and taken, and uh, Pierre is taken away from his quest of vengeance to go have a boys night. Um, And the next morning, he um, goes out, wandering the streets, many people out. Among them is a family who's lost their daughter in a fire. Pierre goes and finds her uh, as the French are looting the house, which is on fire. Uh, the daughter's just kind of sitting in the garden. And as he comes back, he finds uh, a French soldier attacking a young Armenian woman and, you know, pounces on him and starts beating him until other French soldiers uh, arrest him and take him away as being a suspicious element. And that's where we leave book uh, book three, Moscow Burning. Oh, also, also sorry, should note, very minor side point, as the Rostovs are heading out, they realize... Uh, that so they, they they gave up a lot of their possessions so they could take many of the wounded with them, which was not a quick decision. That's a lot of back and forth in the story before finally they say, "All right, I guess we can give up a couple dressers if it means we can take some you know some wounded out of Moscow." And they find out that Prince Andre is not only not dead, but he is among the wounded who's been brought to their house. Right. <laughs> Natasha finds out he's there and like one night goes out to go see him, and he's in this complete daze, totally out of it. Before it comes back briefly to realize she's there with him. And they have their little, they have their little moment before we zoom back out. Yeah, they get their kind of forgiveness moments. It's I don't know if it's manic, manic pixie, but it is just dream girl moment, <laughs> I guess, because Andre is just an absolute fugue state. Well, it is a little manic pixie because, it, it, man, it, like you say, he is in a manic fugue state. <laughs> yeah, because he's been uh, shot, <laughs> <laughs> and is probably really infected at this point. R- Right, yeah, he's he does as the doctor prescribes him fresh air for the infection. <laughs> Always known to do well for infections. <laughs> um, so that that's book three. Uh, this yes, has sir. been 
This has been the, you know, the historians love to call everything the long century just so they can fit any, you know, pieces of dates into whatever their theory is. Uh, This is the long 1812. (laughs) Hey, don't, don't tell everyone that we do that. (laughs) Like to do that in literature as well. It's, it's a great, it's a great technique. I, I don't, I won't bash it. I just will call attention to it. Many other parts of this book will cover two to three years each. We've been covering 1812 for the, for the entirety of book three, I want to say, maybe even Mm -hmm. at the end of book two. Yeah, it's it's going on. A lot of stuff. Well, kind of a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. Sort of. It's a lot of not I mean not pushing the plot forward, but it's a lot of set dressing. I don't want to call it set dressing. It's like it feels a lot more like Stalingrad in this part, seeing the intricacies of a city at siege. Or like the people within the city. Right, yeah. Although it's mm, different because people are not being burned inside their cities alive. It, Pierre is just having wine with the Frenchman. So <laughs> it's a, it's, hey. it's definitely a, a vision of a city at siege written by the nobility. <laughs> right. I think the. I mean, not that this is a, an especially uh, uh, like incisive point, but the nobility are individuals, and the you know the the peasants and the poor and the or urban laborers are all a mass. They they don't really get to be individuals, um, which is. Very much not the case in, you know, Grossman. Everyone is an individual in Grossman's work. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, who they are, especially the lower they are, the more Grossman's interested in them, which is not the case here. But there's an overture, I would say, towards the the, indiv- the feelings of the people. Even if it is as a mass, they don't get to be individuals. They mm-hmm. do later in this part express, like, well, we're not dogs, we're human beings. Why are we just being left behind when the nobility get to flee? You know, and even the nobility are leaving behind their servants because they're like, well... We want to come back eventually, so we do need someone to keep this place kept well. Who's going to haul all my crap back if they come yeah. with me? <laughs> we need someone to put this stuff back in, so you guys got to stay behind, obviously. Yeah, just nobility things. Just nobility. So you, you just see a little bit of that, an overture towards it, but not yeah, obviously right. as much as you'd see in, in later literature, which is by no means surprising or a condemnation of War and Peace. It just, it, mm-hmm. it just is you know, a difference in eras. Is there anywhere you want to start in talking about? In closing out book three. Yeah, I think we need to touch a little bit on the Catholicism of it all. Just because I think that... I, I don't really know how true to form Tolstoy's critique is here. But I think it gives you an interesting look at how Russia views the West. And Catholicism is kind of just used as this sort of amorphous West stand-in in this point, I think. This is something that pervades even to this day if you look at how the orthodox view the catholics this is in, in my experience here catholics sort of have this uh rational bent and at least that's what this is portrayed as in war and peace this is how some people think of it might not be your own le- dear listener may not be your own experience with catholicism not here to comment on that but this is how it's coming through in the book this is like the foundation of what is comical in this scene which is as soon as ellen can kind of find like a any sort of like logical rational way out of her marriage that absolves her from right this mystical union uh, which it is supposed to be and instead she says but i imagine that having espoused the true faith i cannot be bound by any obligations imposed on me by a false religion and uh, her spiritual father is like good point and that's kind of what you know gets her out of it and so there's she pulled in the henry the eighth on that one she said that the church won't condone it i'll go to a church that will or create one yeah i think it's kind of a differing point between the orthodox and the catholics as it's like viewed in the novel where the orthodox like church it is viewed as being as tolstoy says yes there's a lot of influence from the state on it that's what you get with Natasha, when she goes to the services and the priest is up there railing against, uh, you know, the French and we got to kill the French and also pray for our enemies. And so, right, he has some theological issues. There's some issues between church and state, of course. Um, But the Catholics, I think he also sees this sort of corruption as being built into the system itself, which is if you can kind of reason it, then, hey, you can get out of doing whatever you feel like. And I don't know how spot on that is for catholics i think like if you were to apply it more towards uh protestants i think tolstoy would have had uh quite a lot to say about protestants as well um 
but so i don't know i don't want to go too far into that that's a separate issue um i do just want to say that this is a major part of the east-west division is obviously the great schism between orthodox and the catholics and so that has like a huge foundational setup for how these two sides even though they are similar there's right these sort of long-standing historical differences um, that have allowed them to sort of develop differently and ellen she she she's not a good look for the catholics uh to sort of absorb into their system because she um you know maybe it's not a commentary on the system itself but a commentary on how individuals can corrupt within systems but it's interesting i don't know if any of that made sense but uh no i'm following with you i'm following with you i'm just trying to figure out how i can offend all religions at once (laughs) sure (laughs) oh trust me i've got i've got a long history at that i can do that for you right right. the typical as someone who's in raised who was raised protestant i'm Mm -hmm. very adept at just walking over everyone else's (laughs) beliefs because protestants (laughs) take nothing seriously uh (laughs) not even their own religion um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's my job to get the Protestants mad too. Um, but yeah, no, I, yeah, it's the the larger. It's mostly comedic. It, it's kind of a it's a small scene in which she converts to Catholicism, but it, it really Tolstoy obviously had huge problems with organized religion of any sort, um, and so he was never going to like Catholicism. Uh, but also to add on the individual addition of a person in this case Helena, who is like, well, isn't the point of religion really just to satisfy my needs? And then everyone else around her being so enamored, they're they're like, good point. Could could be, yeah. I haven't thought of it. I think that's actually what the Jesus is talking about in the Gospels. <laughs> um, <laughs> when he goes into the temple and he sees all the money lenders, he says, well, I mean, as long as they observe the observe the certain decencies of Judaism, I guess it's all right for them all to turn this temple into a place of commerce as i I recall the story goes right right Um, right right. well i think the (laughs) irony really is even all of these people like they they don't read the gospel it's just you know it's he's really commenting on is the sort of infusion of sort of like the the really legalistic side of religion um that gets infused right with the state and how do we as the upper class kind of use that and bend that to our will and None of these people care at all about religion, except maybe Princess Maria, you could argue, and Natasha for like 20 pages. But like, aside from that, right? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. I do want to say this, the start of this chapter is strong, or the book, part of the book. Oh, he comes out swinging. It's a again. good one. It's the same point he's been making every time, but again, he comes but out swinging every time. swinging. <laughs> he's 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 finding new ways. Before he's just like, let me just go on a rant about historians. Now he's this time he's like, let me go on a rant about Greek mythology and tell you why that actually. Right. I was like, all right, we're starting with some Achilles. What's going to happen? Then I was like, oh, social sciences again. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I think um, I think he touched on this briefly. I remember. I don't remember where this is from, but he says, you know, chess players will when they when they lose a game will look for their mistake in their opening move, but they forget that it was not only in the opening move, but in every every action after that which was affected by that mistake in the opening move which also was a further mistake which leads into you know this idea that you know it's we need to although it's not super interesting to say again history is not made up of the great people the ones who push us forward but rather all of us together i do think is an interesting point to him him coming out and saying we need to understand history not as the will of a few but rather the collective action and belief of everyone and that history is not a series of events it's not you can go from battle to battle to understand history it's you have to understand every point in between that battle if you want to understand why was the now why was this battle won it's not enough to say because they made the right decisions it's because these troops marched there earlier they had a more favorable position they had better morale you know a million things that happened even on just on the day before what kind of bread did they have for breakfast that is the (laughs) urgent question i must know it's 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 continuous there's no stopping point you can stop and say this is how to understand history it's mm-hmm. every point of history explains every other point in history which you know not a historian can explain again pretty difficult to write his historian history that way but possible um there uh, even if it might fall into the same trappings like some of the other the authors mentioned before obviously Alexeyevich, turkel uh, maybe even zinn or howard zinn i should say i don't think we've talked about him before but I don't know if I have too much to add to that. Just I, I, Tolstoy has a salient critique of history before history is a recognized discipline. I mean, as we understand today, history has been a discipline since forever. But history at one point was just like 
Thucydides being like, so I talked to this guy and he told me this, this funny story and I'm going to tell it to you over the next 400 pages. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about authority and violence mm. because this is a big part of this chapter, especially the times when the city is kind of just in this like anarchic state and everyone's just like <laughs> running loose uh, yeah looting burning whatever everyone's doing and i thought that there is a really kind of interesting point here on, on violence being witnessed and also perpetrated communally with this like mob violence scene and it is now the complete disintegration of the barrier between war and peace so we finally have done it boys we are at the point of the story which is war and peace as not two separate things but one thing existing together they're no longer just similarities between the two that we can see but they're happening at the same uh sort of time there's no peace without war and vice versa i guess you could say and, and importantly for this book, it only took us 900 pages to get here, so it's actually a pretty short journey. Uh, well, I have this on page uh, 1,035, so a little over. Uh, <laughs> I, I my copy, my copy's a little bit longer because I got these short, like you know, this, this bad boy. It's a little, it's a little yeah, lad. The um, thick one. This tiny old text uh, <laughs> that I get to strain my eyes reading. <laughs> so yes, there is this quote right that you mentioned the barrier of human feeling strained to the utmost but still holding the mob in check gave way once begun the consummation of the crime was inevitable and it is very similar to how war also kind of works it kind of again i think tolstoy is figuring out how momentum works in social groups right <laughs> like um how you know if everyone around you is doing something you will feel more empowered to join in or unconsciously even join in and engage in whatever the group is doing in this case it's a mob so of course there's probably more interesting things to learn about in terms of mob psychology nowadays than Tolstoy was on to here but he's definitely on to something and it goes into my larger point on this chapter or rather this book which is how do we use social institutions to our benefit? We've talked a little bit about Helena, how she's using uh, the Catholic Church to her benefit, but there's this sort of like smaller scale institution. If you well, can if you'll indulge me here, uh, the mob okay. or the military, you know, the, a mob is not really an institution, but they sort of serve this same purpose, which is to de individualize you to sort of alleviate any sort of burden on you. Uh, any sort of stress that you might be doing the wrong thing. Um, and that to me seems to be a really big point here. Like this is the function of bureaucracy. It is the function of institutions and on a very small scale, the function of the mob, which is when you do things as part of this larger group, hey, it wasn't really me. It was the <laughs> larger group. It was the institution. I have done mm -hmm. no wrong. And so this is really an issue with society that Tolstoy sees, which is that nobody takes any sort of accountability for their own mm -hmm. actions. Uh, as we've said, when will you learn that your actions have consequences? I don't know. It seems like people are not learning. No, no, no. No, no, no. Yeah, and, and more... Uh, on, on more than one level, are, are not only are the individuals in the in this case the institution, the mob, the military not learning. You also have uh, Rostopchin, who is in this case kind of referred to as the administrator. But I think you could uh, roughly take that idea out to also the administrators, the military, the generals, uh, in which it said uh, that um, you know in untroubled times it seems to every administrator that it is only by his efforts that the whole population under his rule is kept going. And in this consciousness of being indispensable, every administrator finds the chief reward of his labor and efforts. And while the sea of history remains calm, the rural administrator and his frail bark holding on to a, with a boat hook to the ship of the people and himself moving naturally imagines that his efforts move the ship he is holding on to. But as soon as the, you know a storm arises, it's impossible to maintain that illusion, which is a point he's been making over and over again, both in the military and in the civilian sphere. And, and like you said, it comes clashing home here when it's collide or colliding home here with the uh, actions of the administrators having uh, not no effect obviously does affect the people but clearly nowhere near the effect they believe it they have nowhere near the control they believe they have 
Yeah, there's this other good quote that says the officials, the heads of the various government departments, knew as well as Count Rostopchin that Moscow would soon be in the hands of the enemy, and to evade personal responsibility, they had all come to the governor general to ask how they were to deal with their departments. <laughs> Which kind of shows, right, like their sort of viewpoint of authority which is not as people always assume, which is just, this mm. is top-down me telling you what to do. I am, this is the authoritarian rule that Russia has always had. This is this myth that is pervasive nowadays still. There is another view of authority in Russian history and literature that is both positive and negative at the same time, which is that authority is a burden. It absolves you from having to have responsibility on yourself when you can always look up and say, hey, that guy told me to do it. You know, that's a really big portion of what is happening in in this. And when times get really tough, you can always point at somebody else, uh, which is positive for you, but it's still starting out. It's incredibly negative for the society as a whole because people abuse what limited power they have and the whole thing kind of goes crumbling down as... Moscow, the city itself, goes crumbling down as it's burnt because no one's taking care of anything. No one's looking after anything. Nobody knows who to ask for anything. It's just a disaster. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a foreign army in a wooden city. Yeah. That sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that covers um, a lot of the major points here. No. This is, oh. No. We're we going more. We got at least two All more right. points to cover, baby. All right, let's cover them. What do we got? All right. We got Pierre. We haven't okay. talked about Pierre. That's Pierre right. in this part to me reminds me a lot of a Dostoevsky character. I think he could almost be like a Raskolnikov. I had that thought. I'm sorry. I just that, Yeah. Yeah. I I felt I've the the whatever it is, I, I, I am on the same wavelength as you. Yeah, so I think that he obviously it's like almost like inverse in the action of Raskolnikov and that he saves someone from dying instead of murdering the pawnbroker. Uh, but he kind of, right, he has his plot. He does a lot of this like aimless, mindless sort of like wandering around, mumbling to himself. But ultimately he has this like overwhelming sense of just impotence, which is how Raskolnikov spends the entire book after the murder. And so there's like this very kind of similar overlap there are a lot of similarities in the scene of Vereshagin being killed by the mob that sort of maybe mirror the imagery in Crime and Punishment of the horse being killed, which is also this uh, example of communal violence being witnessed. And it's interesting, is all I'll say. Uh, I don't know if I can draw the comparison completely, but for people that say Tolstoy and Dostoevsky just so completely different, blah 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 blah. there are a lot of overlaps between the two that you might find interesting if you're really kind of looking for them mm -hmm. this one i think is a little more obvious because it's uh someone who is formerly highborn or formerly mm -hmm. doing well now in peasant clothing wandering the streets talking to the you know the rabble and the the crowd right. and the, the general public which tolstoy does not ever <laughs> not usually address which i think maybe why i don't think i didn't think about war and, or crime and punishment specifically but just mm -hmm. the entire the scene the setting what he's paying attention to is very dostoevskian to your point yeah in this part <laughs> it's different than the rest of the book for sure and then the very last point that i wanted to touch on was the differences between the generals you have Kutuzov and Napoleon here, and we have, of course, the scene of Kutuzov just saying, we're done, we're going to retreat, uh, there's nothing that we can do at this point, city's going to burn, <clears throat> city's going to burn, sorry about it, uh, enjoy the enjoy the view, <laughs> and <laughs> you have Napoleon who, he's winning the battle, but Tolstoy shows you how the seeds of his own destruction are being sown, and that besides the scene with pierre what's really going on outside of this small tiny aristocratic viewpoint is that these soldiers are going nuts and they're beating people in the street and they're looting the city and they're bringing all their crap with them which as he notes they basically are like a monkey that reached into a jar for a handful of nuts and can't drop them now <laughs> and <laughs> in despite of the fact that napoleon develops right this commission or whatever this group of soldiers to go make sure that there's public order and to make sure that their own soldiers aren't looting he has no control over his own troops. 
So how is he supposed to conquer the whole world when no one's going to listen to him, when everyone's just going to do what they want to do anyways? And I think that Kutuzov, this is the deciding like mirror image of the two. This is why Kutuzov comes out on top eventually spoiler alert um <laughs> i don't know if you would know this but napoleon doesn't win the war i don't know if you right i don't know if napoleon does actually lose um, um and then he gets to go on a tropical island getaway <laughs> he gets to go on a little tropical island vacation um his own little personal love island um <laughs> not there are there are there are fewer brits i i believe there well not anymore but that's a different matter um i i don't know if you took this away but when Napoleon is in his deep daydream of the boyars coming to love him and him giving such an extravagant speech, it, it really paralleled a lot of Pierre's early days when Pierre's just in his room imagining that he's giving <laughs> yeah. such an extravagant speech to Napoleon. And it feels like it brought, I mean, this is what Tolstoy has been doing this whole book of like, really, how much control does Napoleon really have? But I think it was some of its most effective for me is just drawing that very clear and obvious parallel to someone a character who is always impotent always just kind of things happening despite him and and right. seeing more and more of a connection between the two and the way they just act in their day-to-day life mm-hmm. yeah no that's a good point i didn't didn't really connect the two daydreams but they are kind of similar and then okay very last thing i gotta yes. mention it I'm not gonna talk about it yet but prince andre discovers the truth of the world which is that he learns how to love his neighbor he learns who his neighbor is. This is in the scene between him and Natasha. And this will be important later. I'm, uh, we don't have a ton of time to go into it now. And it's still kind of like in its primordial development <laughs> um, for Tolstoy. So it'll be interesting to track how that goes, whether it whether it stays. <laughs> and um, as we're heading into the last part of the book, I mean, we're in book four. So, I mean, we got the epilogues, but uh, we'll be we'll be wrapping it up pretty soon and so we'll be able to finally see what Tolstoy thinks like where do the characters end up and was it a good spot for them or were they naughty naughty characters and they get something <laughs> bad in the ending <laughs> which of our characters get cold in their stocking this year yeah, exactly that's what we're here to answer <laughs> and you'll find out next time but uh, Matt I have to ask you before we wrap up what parts of book four are we going to be covering next time all right, so next time we're going to be reading book four, parts one and two. And then the last couple episodes, we're just going to be doing book four, part three, book four. Book, I can't talk. Book four, <laughs> part four. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to cut that out. I'm just going to leave the first part. All right. <laughs> Check the website if you want to know our reading list. It's finally updated. Uh, and also, I have to ask, um, as we're closing out, what is your zinger of the week? My, my zinger of the week I did talk about, but I liked when Tolstoy compared Napoleon's troops to the the monkey having se- seized a handful of its nuts. And specifically, <laughs> I had to choose uh, like an earlier part of this quote because if you take it out of context, the way the translation <laughs> translates it is the monkey having its handful of nuts, um, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. And I just thought it was funny because I pictured <clears throat> a monkey grabbing his nuts. <laughs> so... I, I quite enjoyed that. Sure. You can go back and check me if, if you want. It's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> how, how, how did you end up on a scale from one to Yeltsin? I assume not too high with one beer, but... Sure. No, with one single beer, I am on, a, on like a, a one, 1. 1.5. Oh, no. But it but is 9.30 a.m. It is, well, 10.30 now, but... Okay. Um, yeah, still, that's actually probably ideal, so I can... Uh, um, have enough time to go and you know make lunch and, and g- clean up before i start getting ready to head to work but uh sure sure sure, sure. <laughs> well before we let you go we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons christina marin jg banana karenina danielle margarita yulia amanda john natalie halil ben james elizabeth shannon blake amanda maya Hack Rob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, 
Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast, on Twitter at tipsytolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.